Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I think the most promise in the next three to five years for pancreas cancer specifically is going to be in biomarker-directed therapy, meaning that there's a specific genetic or molecular alteration within the tumor that's been identified that leads to specific therapy. And there are multiple such biomarkers that can exist in pancreas cancers if we go looking for them. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 225 of Passion Struck. Recently ranked over the past month as one of the top 20 health podcasts. And thank you to each and every one of you for coming back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or if you'd just like to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs or Spotify to get started. In case you missed my episode from earlier in the week, it featured Dr. Alyssa Hallerman, who's a psychologist and author of the brand new book, Sobriety, where she discusses how do you overcome trauma, treat addiction, but more importantly, reconnect to your inner soul. I also wanted to thank the community for your continued support by giving us five-star ratings and reviews. They go such a long way in helping promote the popularity of this podcast, but more importantly, growing the Passion Struck community. I also know that our guests love to read your messages as well. Now, let's talk about today's episode. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States behind lung and colon cancer. Often, the symptoms of pancreatic pancreatic cancer are imperceptible at the early stages, leading to a large number of cases not being caught in time. Today, we will be discussing all things pancreatic cancer with Dr. Michael Pishvan, one of the world's leading gastrointestinal oncologists who specializes in pancreatic and refractory colorectal cancers. He will explain how there are now several biomarkers that are helping doctors as well as patients in the early testing and diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. We will go into why, if patients are diagnosed in time for surgery, their chances of surviving five years or more increases tenfold. We will also be discussing in depth the treatment options for pancreatic cancer, which include surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, naturopath options, homeopathic options, as well as the role that diet plays. Dr. Pishvian is the director of gastrointestinal development therapeutics and clinical research programs for the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center, as well as being an associate professor at the School of Medicine. He is committed to precision medicine and provides his patients with the most appropriate as well as advanced level of care. He provides all levels of clinical trials for all GI cancers and enrolls qualifying patients. We are also joined today by a special guest host, my sister, Carolyn Miles. Carolyn is a licensed master social worker, providing individual 
group and couples therapy, as well as being a pancreatic cancer survivor. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am honored today to have Dr. Michael Pishvayan, as well as my sister Carolyn on the Passion Struck podcast. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much. Well, for the listener, you know, I've mentioned my sister in the past, but this is the first time that she's been on the show. I thought before we started asking my questions that she could tell a little bit about her story and what led us here. Yes. Hi, my name is Carolyn Miles and Dr. Pishvayan is a dear source of hope, I'd say for me and has been since the beginning when my oncologist here in Austin, Texas connected me to him. So I was diagnosed in September 2020. Shock of all shocks because I am an extraordinarily healthy human being, always ate right, exercised four to five times a week, really took care of myself. And there's no genetic link to pancreatic cancer in my family. What I heard at MD Anderson was this is really bad luck. You just got really bad luck. I was originally diagnosed with stage two pancreatic cancer. Uh, right before I was about to have the major life-saving surgery, they thought my cancer had spread to my liver. And this man here, Dr. Pishvayan, gave me hope, said, I see, I've seen a couple patients who they thought the scan showed it was spreading to the liver, but it didn't. You keep pushing and pushing, and I pushed and pushed. And finally, it was realized that what they thought was inflammation in the liver, everything disappeared. So I was able to have the life-saving Whipple surgery at MD Anderson. And then tangentially on either side, I had eight months of chemotherapy, largely Fulfirinox, which is one of the mainline treatments. I've had a year of remission, a little bit over a year of remission. And fast forward, I just learned five weeks ago that my cancer is back and it's metastasized to my lungs. And now I know I face a terminal cancer, but I want to live as long as I can because I'm darn it. I want to get my son through high school, which is a six-year target. Mm -hmm. So I need to be an outlier to the statistics. So that's my story. Carolyn, thank you for sharing that. And if a listener might not have any clue what Whipple surgery is, can you just give an explanation of what that is to them? I'm happy to dive into that. Carolyn, it really takes a lot of courage to walk through your history like that so calmly. It is really transformational to one's life to have to be struck with this. And there's some things that you said that I really want to emphasize, one of which is that you have a cancer diagnosis now with the cancer having spread to the lungs. That means it's something that's curable. But I don't like to use the word terminal because you're not going to spend the next hopefully six or more years or how much time you have left just waiting for the end. You're going to make the most out of life that you have left. And so I think of it as just another part of the travails of our life that we have to deal with. And that's why I really like the, uh, the hashtag for the World Cancer Day was it's hashtag it's about time, which I think is really appropriate. It's really about just how do we, of course, extend the life of people in your situation, but do so in a way that's maximizing their quality of life so that they can live as close to normally as possible. And I think that should really be the aim and the goal. As for what a Whipple surgery is, so it's a surgery that removes typically the head of the pancreas, which is 
the one that's closer to the middle of the abdomen. And because the head of the pancreas, the blood supply and the way things connect, the surgeon, when they remove it, they obligatorily remove the first part of the small intestine. Uh, they used to also remove part of the stomach, but that's not really the case anymore. So it's just the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum. And then they reconfigure the plumbing a little bit so that the, the uh, stomach empties directly down into a part of the intestine that's a lo- little further down. The flow of food doesn't go quite as smoothly from stomach to duodenum as it does now from stomach to the other part of the small intestine. The Whipple surgery is a major surgery. Most patients spend at least five to seven days in the hospital afterwards and another six to eight weeks at home recovering. And even people who are cured of their cancer or any other condition for which they had the Whipple, it often is described as something that's life-changing, but something that you can learn to get used to. And it often takes a couple of years to learn to reconfigure how you how you eat, how you live your life, to be able to get used to uh, having had a Whipple surgery. Just for completion, the other surgery that we do for pancreas cancer is called a distal pancreatectomy. It's actually a, a simpler surgery. It's usually done laparoscopic now, just by cameras and probes, where they remove the tail of the pancreas. And again, because the blood supply is all connected, they also remove the spleen in an obligatory way. Thank you for that answer. And I thought maybe we could just take a little bit of a step back and maybe just give the audience a better understanding for what led you to go down this path of becoming a gastrointestinal oncologist. Sure. Happy to. Uh, I'll try and make the long story short. But when I was in medical school, I did a PhD in cancer research. And primarily the focus was on breast cancer research. But actually, as I came into residency and started to focus my clinical pathway, I just had incredible mentors in the GI cancer world. And of course, it wasn't a small factor that my wife is a gastroenterologist. So we, we were speaking the same language. But I just felt like in the GI cancer world, there was so much progress that needed to be made. Not that there's not in many other cancer types, but when I graduated residency, it was 2004, fellowship was 2007, and we have made so much progress in the world of gastrointestinal cancers, including pancreatic cancer, in the last 15 years. But where we were 15 years ago, wow, it was a tough time. And I just saw the need was so great in this field of GI cancer research. Well, I just recently read earlier today that pancreatic cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. And I wanted to understand what makes pancreatic cancer different and more difficult to treat than other types of cancer. Yeah, I wish I knew the clear answer to that question, but you're right. It is definitely a very deadly cancer part of it starts from the outset. When a pancreas cancer develops, at the earliest of stages, it learns to sow these microscopic seeds of cancer. And we know that because even patients who have Whipple or other surgery to remove a very early stage cancer, there's still unfortunately a decent chance that cancer will reveal itself a couple of years later because those microscopic seeds were sown early on. Above and beyond the fact that it has these microscopic seeds, it's just a cancer that's also very fairly refractory to chemotherapy. Chemotherapy helps in pancreatic cancer, but it doesn't cure cancers. It doesn't make them go away completely. Some of the other cancers that we might treat with chemotherapy. And then it also has a fairly uh, rapid pace of developing resistance to the chemotherapies that we do have. So 
the longevity of being able to successfully use a chemotherapy is unfortunately relatively short. The pancreatic cancer also suffers from not having had much of an opportunity to respond to immunotherapy. So immune targeting drugs have been really revolutionary in the last 10, 15 years. And melanoma of the skin was as bad as pancreas cancer uh, 15 years ago. But for some reason, well, we know why. For many reasons, melanoma responds robustly to immune therapies that trigger the immune system to try and fight the cancer directly. We haven't had that success in pancreatic cancer. There's a lot of internal mechanisms by which pancreatic cancer tumors, not just the cancer cells themselves, but all of the tumor and what surrounds the cancer cells, creates an environment that really suppresses the immune system. And we haven't learned, we globally haven't really learned how to overcome that degree of resistance. And the final comment I'll make about why pancreatic cancer has not been successfully treated is because these cancers traditionally were not thought to harbor a lot of genetically targetable biomarkers. But I think we're learning that that's changing um, and we're starting to understand better some of the drivers and there are newer therapies being targeted towards those drivers. Okay, and I'm going to direct this question at both of you. I also understand that PC is very difficult to detect early stage at times. And Carolyn, I remember right before this happened with you, you were at her parents' house feeling fine, and then all of a sudden something started to change and you noticed subtle changes. For someone who doesn't understand this, I was hoping you both could talk about it. I can just start with the personal story. I was feeling fine, although I would say looking back now, I remember for years increasingly saying how tired I was feeling all the time. And I just thought it was because I'm a single mom. I was working full time, getting my master's in social work in my spare time. So I was just like, oh, it's because I have too much going on. But no, I think it's because the tumors were making me tired. But the real signs were when I started having nausea, we just couldn't figure out what it was. And then the blood work showed the belly rubin and liver scores were really high. And so they did a stat MRI, but it was really the nausea, the exhaustion at the very and right before the diagnosis, I would need to take two naps a day. Mm-hmm. So it got increasingly worse. And then I got jaundice and itchy all over my body. Yeah, what you experienced was not uncommon. Pancreas cancer, the pancreas itself sits in the middle of the abdomen. It's actually a relatively soft organ. And something that grows there doesn't tend to cause much in the way of problems until often it's grown enough to cause big problems. So most patients who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer have very vague symptoms, vague abdominal discomfort, maybe not even pain, vague nausea, tiredness. Sometimes they're losing weight. There's a lot of patients that have been trying to lose weight for 20 years, and then all of a sudden they're happy that they've lost 10 or 20 pounds, whereas really it was because of the underlying cancer. I think that we as a community just need to stay vigilant to some of these potential symptoms because there's no real red flag symptom and there's no screening test for pancreas cancer. About Only about 10% of patients present in the classical way that you did, where there was actual jaundice, actual yelling of the eyes, darkening of the urine that develops. And again, in those situations, like in your situation, symptoms of that have probably been present for weeks, if not actually months. 
And then the other part of it, the pancreas, is, pancreas tumors are hard to diagnose. So there's countless patients that I've seen that have gone to see their primary care doctor and they've had endoscopies, they've had CAT scans that weren't done quite the right way. Not that they were wrong, but they weren't looking specifically for a pancreatic tumor and they were just missed. The gold standard test to be able to identify a pancreas mass is an endoscopic ultrasound, which is obviously an invasive procedure and not something that we should do for every patient who has a little bit of abdominal discomfort. If in the future we start to develop true screening tests for pancreatic cancer, that could make a huge impact on this disease. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. And just to follow on to that, are you finding there to be any difference in discovering it between the use of a CT versus an MRI? So there's a CT, there's a way to do a CT called a pancreas protocol CT that is fairly universal across most centers where it's not really about the quality of the scanner. It's really about the way in which the contrast is injected and then how quickly the pictures are taken. Uh, A radiology department just needs to be aware that that's what they're looking for. Most CTs that are done for somebody who's in the emergency room, they aren't done that way. Uh, MRIs don't, they are, they might be a little bit better, but they're not night and day different, night and day better. And even MRIs can sometimes miss pancreatic tumors. A good quality pancreas protocol CT sometimes can be better than an MRI. Okay. And you mentioned several of the treatment options already. You both did. You've covered the two different types of surgeries. Just for someone who may not understand, what is the typical chemotherapy and radiation protocol that's used? Sure. Well, before I go to that, let me just real quick mention that only about 10% of the tumors that are diagnosed in the pancreas are diagnosed as operable from the outset. And what really defines operability is what are the chances that the tumor is going to be gotten rid of entirely, that there's actually a true potential for cure? Because the tumor can always be removed by a surgeon, but if a surgeon leaves tumor behind, or if there's tumor that's already spread to other organs, then this big operation isn't going to do the patient any good. So that's really what I mean by operability. It's not 
the technical ability to go in there and get the tumor out, but will it achieve the goal of intending to be cured in therapy, cured in surgery or not? So 10% of patients have truly operable disease. Another 30 to 35% have disease that is localized within the area of the pancreas, but maybe wraps itself around some critical blood vessels, making the chances of leaving cancer behind unacceptably high. And then unfortunately, more than half of patients diagnosed already have cancer that has spread to other organs. The mainstay of treatment for pancreatic cancer is really chemotherapy because even for patients who have curative surgery, their cancer still has a high potential to come back. And we know that giving chemotherapy can reduce that risk, not unfortunately to not to 0%. These cancers still have a decent chance of coming back even with chemotherapy, but we've improved the odds overall. Do you want me to go into the details of the kinds of chemotherapy that we have? Maybe just quickly, because I know we wanted to spend a good chunk talking about things beyond this, but yes. So basically, there's two cocktails that we use. One is a three-drug cocktail called Fulfirinox, made up of three drugs, 5-FU, irinotecan, nuxalplatin, carol, that's the kind that you had. The second drug cocktail we have is called Gemcitabine and Nampacopaxil. And these two cocktails really are our foundation. They both work to some degree. We don't really know which patient benefits from which cocktail better, and some of it is just trial and error. They both can have side effects that we just need to be ready to adjust and tweak and make the changes that we need to make it tolerable for a patient. But they both have improved outcomes significantly compared to 12 years ago, where our only standard of care was a single drug called gemcitabine, which really didn't work very well by itself. How do you use radiation therapy as part of this protocol? Radiation therapy, frustratingly, has never been proven to help cure patients with pancreatic cancer, cure more patients with pancreatic cancer. And there have been dozens and dozens of trials trying to figure out how to optimize the use of radiation, but we've just never proven that it actually makes a difference. Now, having said that, we often use it. So one of the things radiation does do very well is control symptoms, control pain, discomfort, other things that are coming from these hard pancreatic tumors that are sitting there in the pancreas. And I will not infrequently send my patients to radiation therapy for the purposes of palliation, of helping them to feel better. There's a real controversy in the literature as to whether we're making tumors more operable by offering radiation therapy. Again, many of us still continue to do it, although the published literature would probably suggest that we shouldn't, but that's a whole nother debate. This is the Passion Struck Podcast with our guest, Dr. Michael Pishvian. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored in part by Shopify. Hear that little cha-ching? That's the satisfying sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform trusted by millions of entrepreneurs to create their online store. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving mere mortals like you or me the resources once reserved for big businesses. With a great-looking online store and tools to manage the day-to-day and drive sales, you don't need to know how to code or design to get started on Shopify. Because Shopify grows as your business grows and there's 24 by 7 support if you need help. And once your store is live, Shopify makes getting paid simple. I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run their own business, just like our friend who just started selling pottery. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs, just like me, from first sale 
to full scale. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash passionstruck, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash passionstruck to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash passionstruck. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I love hearing from all of you. And I love the fact that you all have been great to our sponsors because they're the ones that keep the show going as well. You can check out all the sponsors at passionstruck.com slash deals. You'll find all the codes and URLs. All those things are there. So please consider supporting those who support the show. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Michael Pishvan. Okay. And if you're someone who might be facing this and you've You've gotten this diagnosis. I know one of the things that we went through is how do you find which hospital or which physicians are best to treat you depending on what has been discovered? What would be your advice to patients about that? Pancreas cancer is a complicated disease. There are a lot of subtleties that come with experience. And so I think going to a center that sees a fair bit of pancreatic cancer is really important. There are resources out there, including the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network has their patient central. They will guide patients to more active pancreatic cancer centers all across the country. So that's a a phone call that could be made. Yeah, that would be my primary thought. Okay. And Carolyn, I'll turn it over to you to ask a couple questions. I know you talked about the first line treatment, which is chemotherapy and then the Whipple, but now I'm just in the dynamic where now I have metastatic pancreatic cancers. I'm starting the gemcitabine Abraxan again, uh, but I am having to look ahead to clinical trials. And I know this is your area of just expertise in the country. One of the challenges that I am struggling with is I know my biomarkers. I know you advocate for getting your biomarkers done, which Foundation One did my testing. And so I know I have very common mutations. I have KROS and I have that TP3, I think it's called. And so um, KROS is the leading one, which is the leading for people who have endocarcinoma, which is the most common type of pancreatic cancer. So When you go to your institution, like I could go to MD Anderson, what they are going to offer me by way of clinical trials is what they have in-house. So what I am perplexed with sometimes is I understand that's what they have regionally in their hospital system. But given that I know my two biomarkers, I want to know what's the best clinical trial. And if I need to go there for the clinical trial, I'll go there but I'd rather it start with me, my pathology, my biomarkers leading me to the right trial as opposed to this local institution. This is what trials they have available. Yeah. This is a struggle. This is a tough question that you're asking and one that I really wish that there was a national solution for. So first of all, I'll say that, yes, I agree 100% that every patient with pancreatic cancer should undergo germline genetic testing. That germline meaning that the genes that they were born with. And we usually do that with a blood test or a saliva test. And all of the guidelines support that we should be doing that kind of testing on 100% of pancreatic cancer patients. In addition, the vast majority, meaning 80 to 90% of patients who have cancer that spread should also undergo tumor testing, what we call somatic testing. And there are institutional tests that can be done for that. There are also retail labs like Foundation Medicine, Keras, Tempest, and many others that can do that test as well. Those tests are important because they may actually open the door to additional therapies, including in the context of clinical trials. So if a biomarker is identified, then it's a matter of how do we find those clinical trials? 
Again, there are some resources that can be used. There's clinicaltrials.gov, which is a very clunky resource to navigate that. The Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, I keep pointing towards them. They do have the ability to help patients search through trials that are geographically located. There are newer programs that are developing to try and navigate patients to a clinical trial that are nationally available. Unfortunately, a lot of it's just word of mouth. The one thing I would say is at least in the academic pancreatic cancer community, we tend to know each other very well. We're all very good friends. It's a very friendly community. And if you if you went to your medical oncologist at MD Anderson and said, hey, is there another trial that you know about there? I know that he or she would have no qualms about sending an email to our community, if you will, and say, hey, does anybody have a trial? I do that all the time. I'm on the East Coast. So I will routinely send an email when I have a patient who's willing to travel, basically from my colleagues from Boston down to North Carolina. And I always actually include the MD Anderson folks as well, just because they're such a huge resource. So a lot of it, unfortunately, is word of mouth. I've always said we really need to have an actual navigation resource for getting patients on a clinical trial, depending on how far they're willing to travel for. Um, You asked me the question about the value of getting patients on clinical trials. Well, pancreas cancer, we know, is a tough cancer to beat. And so any progress we could make is good progress. I think what really has to be weighed in very heavily are the goals of the patient. If you have a patient, like the one patient I had who had his private jet and used to fly from Canada every day to come to me every other week for a clinical trial, then great. That was a that was fine for his quality of life. But if you have a patient who really doesn't have the ability to travel that far, then we need to go and find them a trial that's going to be within a reasonable distance to be able to get on that trial. And again, that's where navigation systems come into play. I think family and friends can also be big advocates. I've had many, many family members and friends of patients that have reached out to me and say, I've heard you might have a clinical trial. And I personally am more than happy to engage those patients, as are many of my colleagues around the country. I know that for sure. Well, that's really helpful. And it is a clunky process. So I appreciate you (laughs) validating that experience from the patient experience. Well, and then I know this is your area of expertise is like sourcing out clinical trials and looking at biomarkers. And so I am just wondering, like sitting where I'm at, what novel treatments that are in phase one or phase two trials should I be paying attention to or that you're thinking are the most promising ones coming online? Yeah, I think the most promise in the next three to five years for pancreas cancer specifically is going to be in biomarker-directed therapy, meaning that there's a specific genetic or molecular alteration within the tumor that's been identified that leads to specific therapy. And there are multiple such biomarkers that can exist in pancreas cancers if we go looking for them. One thing I always emphasize for anybody that's listening to this is there's nothing about the patient usually that tells us that they actually have that genetic alteration not even family history or anything like that can necessarily be predicted. So the physician just needs to go looking for these potential molecular alterations, including in what we call fusion genes, which are not detected on the traditional simple DNA panel. They usually require an RNA panel as well. And again, many of the retail testing labs are looking for these fusion genes now, uh, but you got to go looking for it. Otherwise, you'll never find it. As far as promising trials, I think a lot of them are targeted towards those biomarkers 
and the breadth of biomarkers that are being tested now is growing. Traditionally, in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, we've been focusing in pancreas cancer on microsatellite instability or mismatch repair deficiency, which can occur in any cancer type, occurs in about a half a percent of pancreas cancer, so one in 200 patients. So not common, but there are trials for that population of patients. There are the DNA damage response and repair pathway genes, which is a, a mouthful, but we call it DDR or HR, which is homologous recombination. Most people know it as the BRCA1 and BRCA2 family of genes, BRCA1, BRCA2. There's actually an approved drug for that called Olaparib for a very specific subgroup of patients, but there are actually many trials trying to target the this DNA response and repair pathway, such as with BRCA1 or BRCA2. And then there's other tests that are out there. There's new kids on the block, if you will. There's an NRG1 fusion that occurs in about 1% of pancreatic cancers. And there's two new drugs that are looking very promising. One might even get FDA approval relatively soon. There are RET fusions, which can occur, again, rarely in pancreatic cancer, but when they're identified, they can actually make some pretty profound impact for patients. In terms of the most common mutations, which are the KRAS, KRAS mutations, 90% of these pancreatic cancers harbor these KRAS mutations. Most of them right now are not targetable, but there are about 1% in pancreas cancer of KRAS G12C. It's a very specific KRAS mutation for which there are now very specific drugs that look very promising. But there are also newer drugs coming down the pipeline targeting the more common KRAS subtypes, including KRAS G12B and KRAS G12D. We're actually about to open up a G12D targeted study here, hopefully in the next coming couple of months that we are very excited about. And I know that there's a similar trial at MD Anderson that would be very worthwhile considering as well. So there are a lot of trials that are available. Some of them are not necessarily located at your quote unquote home institution. But I think being ready to look beyond can help a lot. And Carolyn, can I just a- ask a quick question here? On a- another podcast I heard you on, and I might have this incorrect, but I thought you had indicated that it, it was a large amount of patients once they've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, the insurance records show that in many cases they're not treated. We all know that this gets extremely expensive. How do you work with the insurance community to ensure that you're getting access to the clinical trials that could save your life? So yeah, we actually, we looked at a huge insurance database and asked the very simple question, if you look at pancreatic cancer diagnostic codes, ICD-10 codes, and look to see what happened to those patients in terms of billing thereafter, 55% of patients who had a pancreatic cancer diagnosis never got any further therapy, not surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, not even palliative care, which was really sad that we're not treating more than half our patients with pancreatic cancer across this country. And it's because there's tremendous cynicism about this disease, that it's a terminal disease, that you might as well go get your affairs in order, or all of those kinds of things. And they don't realize that we can actually help patients live longer and feel better when they have pancreatic cancer. As far as negotiating getting these patients in clinical trials, there's a law, there's a law in the books that says that if a patient is enrolled in a clinical trial, the insurance company is required to pay for everything that is typical, normal standard of care insurance billable. So 
standard doctor visits, standard labs, stand, standard CAT scans. Those are all should be billable to insurance, of course, assuming the patient is insured. Things that are the costs that are borne outside of the context of the clinical trial, uh, outside of the context of standard of care, need to be borne by the clinical trial. So either the person, the company who's paying for the study or the institution and things like that. And a lot of trials now, especially for these very rare biomarker subgroups, they can offer travel support, travel costs. There are also advocacy groups out there that are committed to helping patients travel to a site to be able to get on a clinical trial as well. Okay. Carolyn, did you have any further questions on that line? Well, I keep delving further and further in. So we talked about the first line and the second line treatments, the chemo and then the clinical trials. And then Dr. Fishvayan, I'm curious too, if there are any non-medical, so non-chemo, non-radiation, non-surgical treatments or factors that you've seen patients employ that you think increases their longevity with metastatic disease. And we have some that are proven. And the one that I would point to above all else is simple activity or exercise. There was an amazing study presented at our June meeting, our ASCO meeting, done by the French, where the patients were randomized to receive standard chemotherapy, fulpirinox, for metastatic disease. And they were randomized to an engaged physical activity program versus not. And the physical activity was nothing intense. It was 15 minutes of activity a day and then build up as tolerated. And what was amazing for that trial is that patients who were engaged in activity lived four months longer than those who didn't have any activity at all, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it is in the world of metastatic pancreatic cancer. So I think programs that are really focused on encouraging physical activity could be helpful while patients are getting their chemotherapy for the pancreas cancer. We know from the lung cancer literature, and we've borrowed it to other cancers as well. I don't think we've proven it definitively yet in pancreatic cancer but I'm sure it would be true that palliative care can actually really help patients live longer. There was a critical trial done, I think now maybe three, four years ago for patients with advanced lung cancer. They were again, randomized to start palliative care. Palliative care means supportive care, pain control, aggressive nausea control, supportive measures to help the quality of life. But from the get-go, not at the end of life, from the outset of diagnosis, And patients who received palliative care, again, lived considerably longer than those who didn't receive palliative care from the outset. So I think exercise and palliative care are critical parts of any pancreatic cancer patient's journey. There are other secondary things that I think are important as well. Things like acupuncture have been proven to decrease nausea, perhaps decrease pain a little bit. Medical marijuana, I'm actually a very strong proponent of only because I've seen it benefit probably 99.9% of my patients. I don't prescribe it because I don't really know what I'm prescribing, but I refer patients to dispensaries so that they can get guidance there. But I'd say almost all of my patients benefit in terms of nausea, increased appetite, decreased pain when they start using medical marijuana. And can I ask, yeah, and can I ask just one follow-on question to that? There's one type of medical marijuana that is often talked about in the cannabis community, and that's RSO or Rick Simpson oil, which people claim has cured them of cancer. Have you ever had any patient who has used that, who has had a positive result from it? Not specifically. A little skeptical of the medical cannabis 
claims to cure or treat the cancer. I think they do a great job in supporting the patient's symptoms, but I think that we just haven't proven in any kind of a formal clinical trial that it actually helps improve cure rates or survival or otherwise. Because these aren't controlled enough that I can do any kind of a clinical trial that's regulated, I can't really say, oh, this is the formulation that's the best. I can only tell you based on experience. Now, I treat a lot of pancreas cancer patients. So what I hear is, I hear a lot. And what I've heard generally is that patients benefit more from things that are like edibles rather than the CBD oils that might be used. But that's not based on data or science, just based on lots of anecdotes. Okay. And I did want to keep going down this thread because I know one of the other things that I've often read can have an impact is diet. And I think it's widely known that sugar can just aggravate the situation. I know in Carolyn's case, she has gone to an extremely clean mostly plant-based diet. I don't know if you want to expand on that, Carolyn, but my question to you would be, how have you found diet, I guess, mixed in with treatment plans? This has been a big odyssey trying to find out what to eat because when you go through treatment, you're basically told, we just need you to have enough calories. You already lose like 30 to 40 pounds going through the surgery. And so right now it's me wanting to absolutely make sure I keep the weight on. I can't lose any more weight. I've been recommended and there's some evidence-based trials showing that ketogenic diets are beneficial for pancreatic cancer. So I've gone to an extreme. I completely gave up sugar and then didn't realize that things like dates, figs, fruits were causing glucose spikes, which could have an impact on pancreatic disease. So keto is the way I think I'm going to go right now. Yeah, I think that there is some promising science out there, including keto diets that may be a benefit. There is a clinical trial, I think maybe as you were alluding to, ongoing right now, trying to ask the question, chemo plus a keto diet versus chemo alone, will it improve survival? We don't technically know the answer to that yet, but I'm very supportive of anything that's going to enhance the healthy lifestyle while a patient's going through pancreatic cancer treatment. But, and there's a very big but, which is that patients also just need to get their calories. And if they're not able to keep up their caloric intake, and we know that pancreatic cancer is a very high caloric intake disease and a very catabolic disease. And so the patients need a lot of calories to be able to keep up. And if they just can't keep up their calories they need by switching to a plant or or otherwise-based diet, then I think that they have to stick to just a more traditional diet. If there were my preference, yes, it would be a healthier diet, but I'd rather they eat something rather than nothing at all and waste away. As far as sugar specifically, sugar is a tricky one because there's some really fascinating laboratory-based research where if you keep the sugar levels very low in the milieu, in the, in where, in the sort of dish that the cancer cells are living in, that they become much more susceptible to the chemotherapy. The problem is that to get to that level where the sugar is so low, because our bodies regulate our blood sugar so closely, we would virtually be in a coma. And so we can't get our blood sugar levels as low as it needs to be to replicate those studies that have been done in the laboratory. So it, it, it's a tough decision. Again, 
I tell patients that I'd rather you eat a healthier diet, but if you can't stomach, no pun intended, if you can't stomach a healthy diet and you can really just eat fairly bland foods that are not quote unquote the, a, a, a Mediterranean diet, then I think it's best just to get the calories in. To that end, there are some really great nutritionists that are out there. There's not enough of them. We need, we as a society need to do a lot better, much better job supporting nutritionists as a career and supporting their job. But some of them are fantastic and can really guide patients through the kinds of things that they need to eat to keep their calories up and yet to try and stay healthy as we've just been talking about. Um, thank you. Cause that's definitely a tricky thing. You get so many recommendations on what or what not to eat. And after a whipple, you can't go raw. <laughs> you can't do a raw plant diet. Well, well, and then another thing that's been real promising is complementing chemo or yeah, it's usually chemo and radiation protocol with things like vitamin C infusion. Um, there have also been some promising trials and even Von Hoff, who invented Jim Sadovin, he's leading two of the trials. Yep. So curious what you think of that. I, again, I think that unfortunately, none of these things are proven, but I also don't want to stand in the way of them at all. I, thankfully, vitamin C infusions specifically don't seem to add anything in the way of side effects. They definitely add cost. And so I, I worry a little bit when patients are going to, uh, sorry, a, a holistic doc and getting charged a lot of money for vitamin C infusions when we don't actually know that it benefits them. But at the same time, medically, I haven't seen that it necessarily costs anything in the way of side effects. Uh, I'm really happy that some of these trials are being done and pursued so that we can get to a final answer. And the answer might not be necessarily what the community wants. There was a really big study done recently that came out not for can well, not for pancreatic cancer, but it was looking to see if a multivitamin reduced heart disease or reduced the incidence of cancer. And the long and the short of it was that it did neither. So that was a big hit in the gut of the vitamin supplementation community to say that we don't really need these vitamins. So I think these studies should be done and they should be done properly in the way of a patient who wants to get some of these holistic medications outside of my practice. I'm all for it, except unless there's any worry that it's going to actually hurt them. And something like vitamin D, there's no proof that it hurts them. High dose vitamin D, by contrast, there's a real mixed story to that. And there's been some studies that have suggested that it helps chemo, particularly gemcitabine-based chemo, but then also some studies that suggest that it hurts it. So I hesitate a little bit with the vitamin D. Other turmeric, I think there's no clear evidence that it hurts, so I have no problem with it. But mushroom extracts, there are reports of fatal liver failure from mushroom extracts that can occur in combination with chemotherapy. So I think everything has to be taken very carefully. There are integrated medicine centers that are integrated into medical oncology communities. And I think those are great to work with. We actually don't want to have one here where I work, but nearby at George Washington University, there's a great integrated medicine center. And I'm happy to work with the team there because they very much are thinking about the chemotherapy and oncology perspective. What I do worry about are some of the purely holistic physicians, even in my area, who don't communicate with me at all and don't really take into consideration the drugs that I'm giving my patients as well. And then how about homeopathic treatments or naturopathic treatments? I've read literature about things, product called phallogallium phase, taking a 
deep detox regimen with homeopathic drops because toxicity in the body can lead to spreading cancer, et cetera. This is probably something that you haven't studied. But again, is this something where you haven't seen any negative consequences from it? Yeah, I think the I think you hit your, the nail on the head is it's not something that I've studied. It's not something that anybody's studied. There are no publications on this that exist at all. And that's my only, that's my main objection. No, I have not seen any negative side of, ne- negative consequences other than the financial toxicities, which in some cases can be quite significant. So I worry that patients are getting, I don't want to say fleeced, that's too harsh a word, but I, I worry about the patient that's committing their life savings or more financial resources than they really can afford to for some of these methods that have been completely unproven. If they can be proven and they are proven to help, and I always point to acupuncture as a perfect example, a study was done that clearly showed that acupuncture helped decrease nausea and pain and other side effects. And I'm happy to encourage patients to go to acupuncture. And because of the proof that was established, insurance will often pay for acupuncture. So I think that's the direction that we really need to push our homeopathic community to go into is to do proper clinical trials so that we can justify having our patients get those therapies and push the insurance companies to pay for those therapies. Okay. And I just wanted to revisit immunotherapy on another podcast. I heard you say that its effectiveness in pancreatic cancer has been less than 1% if I have it correct. But are there centers around the world that are aggressively looking at this and doing any trials with it that might show some hope for its use? Yeah, there's dozens and dozens. So it's important to kind of walk through the progression. So 10 years ago, there were single agents, single drug immunotherapy. So the anti-PD-1 or pd one agents like nivolumab and cabalizumab and other agents like ipilimumab. Those drugs by themselves, the response rate, the benefit rate was literally 0%. It didn't help anybody. And there are side effects to these drugs that sometimes can be quite severe. It's not common, but even a 3 to 5% rate of serious side effects is far worse than a 0% benefit. But we also know that immunotherapy works. I mean, Dr. Allison got the Nobel Prize for very good reason, because it really, really does work in certain kinds of cancers. The only question is, how do you make it work for pancreatic cancer? What is the nut that needs to be cracked or the glass ceiling that needs to be broken? to finally make immunotherapy work. And I think that we're getting closer and closer to that glass ceiling. I'll give a nod to my colleagues up in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins who are doing amazing sequential research, adding more and more therapies to decrease the resistance to immunotherapy so that hopefully it can start to finally work for patients with pancreatic cancer. Because of that, there are literally dozens and dozens of trials that are ongoing all throughout the country, all throughout the world, that are trying to make immunotherapy work finally once and for all for pancreatic cancer, incorporating vaccines, incorporating what we call cell-based therapies. I would never have, in a bat of an eye, I'd be happy to refer a patient like that to a clinical trial. What I would not do, though, is knowing that the single drugs don't work, is I wouldn't take a patient like Carolyn and say, okay, we're going to be done with chemotherapy, and now we're just going to prescribe pembrolizumab, which is called Keytruda, because that by itself won't work. I would be happy for her to be enrolled in a clinical trial of pembrolizumab plus X, Y, and Z in the hopes that those extra agents are going to help. 
Okay, thank you for that. And then are there risk factors that people might be doing in their life that can make the occurrence of pancreatic cancer more prevalent? And is that something that you've been able to tie anything to? I think the community is really still scratching their heads on what really causes pancreatic cancer. There is an association with overweight, diabetes, insulin resistance, and maybe an increased risk, well, definitely an increased risk in that population of patients. But it's not a black and white risk factor the way I think of smoking and lung cancer as a black and white risk factor. So yes, we all should actually strive more to do more exercise, lose more weight, eat healthier. And that those steps alone probably will decrease the incidence of pancreatic cancer, but I'm not sure that they'll massively decrease the incidence the way that we would hope it would. There are, however, there are about seven to 10% of patients who have an underlying genetic alteration that over the decades of life leads to pancreatic cancer. And as we're testing more of those patients, we're finding more family members that harbor those mutations. And there's some really exciting data that putting them in a proper screening program can significantly improve the cure rate. Um, for example, the cure rate, and I, and I don't use that term lightly, I really mean cure, the cure rate in a patient population who's been screened, and yet despite being screened, they've developed the cancer, they still have a cure rate that's probably about 80%, which is way higher than we typically see for the sort of nat- the typical pancreatic cancer who walks in the doctor's office. Okay. Thank you. And Carolyn, did you have any last questions? Well, one big one I have is I think you're the hope doctor. Every time I listen to your podcast or even have interacted with you on the phone, you give me hope. Sitting where I'm sitting now and wanting to believe that it's possible that I can live a lot longer, like what hope should I have? Why should I have hope? That's a really tough question. I think the answer is that you should have hope that your team, your doctors are going to try and help you to live the best life that you can for as long as you can. There's definitely an acceleration in the pace of research in pancreas cancer specifically, but in the cancer community in general. And so the goal really is to keep you on treatment until something else comes up and then try that. And then until the next thing comes up and give that a try. And there are resources that are being developed across the country to get patients to that next clinical trial. Okay. So it's like the trial to trial to trial and just getting- and just hope that something almost like the lottery, that something yeah. happens. I just spent five minutes talking about the fact that immunotherapy doesn't work, but I got to tell you that my colleagues up in Baltimore who run lots and lots of immunotherapy trials for pancreas cancer, they tell me that there's not many patients, but they've got a handful of pancreatic cancer patients that are probably- close to cured of their cancer, if not frankly cured of their cancer because of the trial that they happen to go on. Why those patients benefited, truly nobody knows. Even the doctors running the trial don't understand why, but it happens once in a while. And so you just hope that you're going to be lucky enough for to be to benefit to that degree. Yeah. And then really thinking outside the box, I'd love to talk to you offline when it's more appropriate, but there was a clinical trial that I had wanted to get started at MD Anderson that I just heard that my colleague, Allison Ocean up in New York opened up for pancreatic cancer that has spread to the liver that I'm super excited about. And I think just that word of mouth about hearing what's available and what options there are gets people again, more hope, but hope of other options to treat their cancer. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being just nationally profiled, being willing to speak in forums like this, because you really do lead us to paths that we might not consider as patients. So I've certainly benefited from your advice and counsel. Oh, I really appreciate that. That means everything to me. Well, I'm certainly humbled that you were able to come on today. And Carolyn, thank you. I can't imagine what it would be like if I were in your shoes trying to do this podcast. So thank you for the way that you've handled it and the confidence and hope and everything that you've displayed throughout the past few years. It's been really remarkable. If there was someone in the audience who wanted to learn more about you and what you're doing at Johns Hopkins, what is the best way for them to connect with you? For me personally, and I can't speak to all of my colleagues, but they're more than welcome to just email me. So if you want to share my email, I have no problem with that at all. (laughs) Okay. Well, well, great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, Carolyn, for being on the show as well. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Pishvan. I wanted to thank Dr. Michael Pishvan, as well as my sister, Carolyn, for joining us in today's very important episode. I also wanted to thank Johns Hopkins for giving us the honor for having him here on the show. Links to all things Dr. Pishvan and my sister will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Videos of today's episode are on YouTube, both at John R. Miles, as well as our new Clips channel, which is called Passionstruck clips. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with Dr. Jonah Berger, who is a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, an internationally acclaimed best-selling author, and an expert on change, word of mouth, viral marketing, social influence, and how products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. And we will be discussing his newest book, A Catalyst, How Do You Change Anyone's Mind? That's exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They identify those roadblocks and they mitigate them, right? They figure out, well, why is that person unwilling to change? Or how can I, rather than feel like pushing, help people see that they can actually choose the outcome that they want? And regardless of what you're doing, regardless if you're a big organization, a small one, a for-profit, a nonprofit, these barriers come up again and again. And I think the more we understand them, the more we can be effective at changing minds and driving action. The fee for this show is that you share it with those that you love and care about, especially if you find something useful or interesting. If you know someone who's dealing with pancreatic cancer, please definitely share today's important episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give this show is to share it with others that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.